Well, this morning I'd like you to turn with me to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Samuel chapter 7. If you don't know where it is, don't feel embarrassed about looking up the index at the front of your Bible. Um, but, uh, and we're going to read about uh, David. And David, at this point, has come to Jerusalem. He's been anointed and crowned king in Jerusalem um, over all Israel. And uh, now he begins to think about uh, God and He's always thinking about God, but now he's thinking about the arrangements for the Ark of the Covenant um, and where God dwells. So I'm going to read the whole chapter. Let's hear what God says. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, But the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since since the day I brought up the people out of, uh, of Israel out from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built for me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. 
Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this is a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the words that you have spoken concerning your servants and concerning this house. And do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, O Lord of hosts, is God over Israel. And the house of of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the, the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your words, we pray you'd help us to understand uh, all that is necessary, that you'd uh, give us joy in the Lord as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So in recent weeks, we've been looking at the outworking of, uh, uh, or the history of God's covenant of grace, uh, that God enters into relationship with human beings uh, through covenant, and it's a covenant of grace. It's graciously, the covenants are graciously instituted by God. God takes the initiative, and so it is his favor that comes towards his people. And we've seen that since the fall, since that first sin of Adam in the garden, there have been several stages of the covenant of grace. Uh, There was first that promise made in the Garden of Eden uh, that there would be a seed who would come. Uh, It's a word made to the serpent, but Adam and Eve are listening in, and the seed of the the woman would come and crush the the head of the seed of the serpent. And of course, we anticipate... We see that as being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So right back in the garden after the fall, God is speaking about a plan of redemption involving a seed. And as you read the Bible, you'll notice that seed comes in quite often. Um, and then we saw the promise to Noah, and that, you know, the sign of the rainbow as a sign of, of, that God would remember never to, to flood the earth again. And... Uh, 
we saw that as a, as a covenant uh, establishing God's co- uh, common grace uh, to everyone. So there's blessing for every single human being. Even if they're not Christians or believers, uh, there is blessing from God. And then we moved on to, to Abraham, uh, in which the covenant uh, held out the promise of a, a place, of a people, uh, and the presence of God. So that, that threefold alliterating title, a place, a people, and the presence of God. Uh, it's, it's such an important pattern that you see uh, being worked out in the covenant of grace. A place, a people, and the presence of God. And last time we looked at the, the promise to Moses. Uh, the covenant made with, through, well, through Moses with the people of Israel uh, on Mount Sinai in, in Exodus 19 through to 24. <clears throat> and uh, today we're going to look at the next stage of God's revelation of his covenant of grace. Uh, we're going to look at, uh, we're going to jump 400 years forward from Moses to David. And David um, is now king. And this is where we read from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And what we see here in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is the, what you might call the covenant of the kingdom, where the, the kingdom is established and the kingship is established. And this is uh, God adding to... And Moses is not disposed of, the Mosaic covenant is not disposed of, uh, it's not been abrogated in any sense. Uh, all the same things still apply, but in, in addition now, there is this promise uh, of a kingdom. And uh, Now the idea, this, we shouldn't look at this and think, well, the idea of a king has suddenly appeared out of nowhere. Actually, the idea of kingship has been uh, subtly present all the way through the Bible so far. Um, though it, it doesn't make a great deal of it uh, until David comes along. Um, if you consider, for example, just how Adam in the garden before his fall, what was his job? His job was to, uh, to work and keep the garden and to rule over all the other creatures. And so da- Adam was given this kingly position in all of creation. Uh, to rule and to reign. Or when you come to Abraham, he is, you may have noticed that Abraham in Genesis 14, uh, when Abraham goes to fight with kings, he is considered to be an equal of kings. And he enters, he fights with kings, and he enters into alliances with other kings. It's as though Abraham himself is a king. Although at the moment he has no place, and he has no people except his, his household of servants and his wife, uh, and so on. Uh, so, so he is, is kingly material. And... Uh, You may remember that in Genesis 17, God promises to Abraham that when his son comes, from his son and from his offspring, from his seed, kings are going to come. So so Abraham is a a kingly figure, although yet he is not uh, publicly recognized as a king. And then when Moses comes along, Moses is not a king, um, 
But in the words that is given to Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, you look at chapter 17, God in his law makes provision for a king. Though there is no king yet. But he makes provision for a king of Israel. And the, the law describes the kind of king that is supposed to rule over Israel. He is not to become rich with horses and possessions. That's a clear sign that a king has gone off the rails. As if he just gathers and accumulates to himself horses and possessions. And, and his mind and his heart goes off in the wrong direction. He is to be, the king is to be humble. Uh, his heart is not to be above his brothers. So he may have that position of kingship, but he's not to think of himself as above anyone else. And he is to, to read and to study God's word and then be careful to do all that is in it. And as it were, to shepherd the people. In doing what God has commanded. And so a king is a shepherd. Over the people. uh, Leading the way by example. And commands. But really conveying God's commands to the people. But Israel has to wait. A further 400 years. Until the right man ascends the throne. And that's David. And a number of significant things have happened. Just before the passage that we read. Uh, uh, to to establish David in his kingship. Uh, Firstly, David has taken Jerusalem. So the Israelites didn't have Jerusalem up until this point. But in chapter 5, they're able to drive out the Jebusites and uh, get established in Jerusalem. And then in chapter 6, the Ark of the Covenant comes to Jerusalem. David, you remember this story, David dancing with all his might before the Lord as the Ark of the Covenant comes to Jerusalem. And the Ark of the Covenant is significant. We were looking at this on Thursday, a couple of Thursdays ago uh, when we were looking at Joshua. But the, the Ark of the Covenant represents a couple of things. It represents, first of all, the pr- very presence of God. It's a symbolic representation of the presence of God. And so the Ark of the Covenant coming to Jerusalem is like God coming to Jerusalem. God coming into the midst of his people. And then it's the Ark of the Covenant. So it is the Ark that has the testimony in it, the the promises of God and the commands of God. And it's a place where the people of God have entered into covenant with God. And God will keep his promises. And so when the Ark of the Covenant is present, it's a reminder that God keeps his promises to his people. So the marvelous, these marvelous things have happened. And the third thing is that David has peace from his enemies. Uh, you see that there in verse 1. David lived in, in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. You read through the story up to this point. Uh, through Joshua, through Judges, through First Samuel, uh, you see there's constant difficulty that the Israelites have with the surrounding nations. But now, David has ascended to the throne, and there's peace. Peace for Israel. And so the scene is set for the establishment of the kingdom of David. But as we'll see, more than simply David's 
throne. But the throne of his kingdom shall endure forever. So you look at verse 12 to Samuel 7. When your, uh, when your days are fulfilled, you will lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before, forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So David's going to die, but the throne is going to be established forever. This is what God promises. So we'll come look at that more in a moment. But the first thing I want to notice with you is, uh, notice how God cannot be outdone in grace. God is gracious and nobody can outdo him in grace. David's reached this high position and there's this period of rest and calm. And what David does next is perhaps understandable. He looks at himself in his fine palace and, uh, and then he looks at the ark and it's in a tent, the, the tabernacle. And he says to himself, is that right? Why should I have this palace and God has this tent? And so David... Who, who knows God's law, he, he loved God's law, he will have remembered Deuteronomy 12 that spoke of uh, a place um, that the Lord shall choose, a place which will be the very center of the spiritual life of Israel. He knew that God sought to dwell amongst his people. That's a story uh, of, of God's dealings with his people all the way through as he wants to dwell amongst his people. And so David, thinking on this, says, says to Nathan the prophet in verse 2, wrong page, uh, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan says to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Uh, in a sense, there's no particular wisdom there. Do what's in your heart to do is, is, a, is a good bit of advice. Um, but it doesn't have anything special about it. And it sounds good to David. So he, he's thinking about building something for uh, a temple for the Lord. But that's not what the Lord has in mind. So that night, God comes to Nathan the prophet in a dream as he's sleeping. And he comes with two questions. He says, would you build me a house to dwell in? And then he effectively asks in verse 7, did I ever command you to build one? Did I ever command you to build one? So what's God getting at here? It sounds good, doesn't it? It sounds like, sounds like God, David is doing a good thing and then God seems to kind of pour water on it. What are you doing? What's God getting at? Well, David's a little bit like the, the apocryphal uh, boy scout. You know, he wants to be helpful, and uh, he starts helping the old lady across the road without actually asking the old lady if she wants to go across the road. You ever thought of that? Some people are so helpful, they don't ask what's needed. Uh, and uh, David's a bit like that. He wants to do something good for God, so he just sets about doing it without really asking the Lord what he wants. And God is re- revealing something um, very important about himself here. He, uh, he points out that he's been traveling with his people uh, 
all the time in verse 6. And the Lord has not been the least bit irritated by the fact that he doesn't have a fancy building to, to dwell in. He's happy to be amongst his people. He's more concerned that his people get to the promised land, that the enemies are subdued, and that the people are at peace. And that they can worship him. And whatever his people were having to endure in the wilderness and in the turmoil of coming to power, he was, he was willing to share in it. So God was willing to share in it, as it were, to be amongst his people in all their sufferings and all their trials. And that was represented by the fact that the ark was in the midst of them. And it's amazing when you think about it. What kind of God is this? What a, what a condescending God. What a, a God who, who dwells in the heights of heaven and yet wants to live and dwell amongst his people. And he's willing to come down amongst his people. That he should stoop so low to come to be amongst sinners and to ensure that they are blessed. Before, they, they build a temple for him. What a God we have. This is the kind of God we have today. He doesn't sit on high and look down upon us and says, Come on, come on, try your hardest. Try and get up to me. No, he comes down. The Emmanuel principle. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is Emmanuel. God comes to be amongst his people. That's a pattern that's all the way through the scripture. God comes down to his people. And here we see it again. I wonder how many people here need to have their, their eyes opened to the kind of God we have. Maybe you have lost sight of the fact that God is a a condescending God. That he wants to come down to be amongst his people. Maybe you need to have your eyes opened. Maybe I do. And as he does so, as he comes to David, we begin to see the next thing in verses 8 to 16. God's great plans for the future. It's the wonderful thing. When God comes down, he begins to open up to us what he plans to do in days to come. And God gives David a quick uh, history lesson. Um, if you look at verse 8, at uh, the end of verse 8, he says, I took you, David, from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. So he reminds David where he's come from. People who sometimes get to the top of things, top of a business or top of their career or whatever, uh, they kind of lose sight of where they've come from. And God says, this is where you've come from and this is why you've got where you've got because I've been with you. And God reminds David of how he was once a shepherd boy, an insignificant shepherd boy. And it is God who dealt with all your enemies and all the trials that you faced as, uh, when Saul was chasing you and wanting to kill you. But you've got here today, David, because I've helped you. And I've 
got you there. I've looked after you. I've cared for you. I have been your rock and your fortress. I have been your ever-present help in time of trouble. You see what God is doing here? He is reminding David. Who's been working out the plans of your life? Has it been you, David? Or has it been me? And the answer is, of course, it's God. God is working out the plans of your life. It's no less true for lives being lived today. Christian lives. He has been and is working to bring glory to himself through the church and through us and to bring us joy in seeing the success of his plans. God is in charge of your life, my life. God is making plans for you. And he is taking you through the steps. And for you and me, sometimes that's difficult. Sometimes we don't know. We don't see the big picture. But God is doing great things in the midst of it. And the response that is required from us is to thank God that he is doing this. To to recognize it and to thank God for it. And to look to him and to keep looking to him. To keep trusting him in the midst of it all. Because the danger is, of course, our eyes start looking elsewhere. Who gave you the breath of life? As you sit here breathing. As we sit here breathing. Who placed you in your current circumstances? Who caused you at the right time to, for your eyes to open and see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Who, who caused all that? God himself. Who has gathered you here to be in this church today at this moment? God has done it. It's the Lord God Almighty. Well, back to David. Let's uh, go on from the history lesson uh, of David's personal life. And God goes on to make a promise with uh, three elements. If you look at verse 9 again, uh, he says, I will make for you a great name, like the great ones of the earth. So he's, God is promising reputation for David. Then he's promising that Israel will be established in the land uh, in verse 10. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. He describes Israel as a plant. And he's looking to that plant to, to grow fruit in season. This idea of a fruiting plant is, is a common one in speaking about the people of, of God all the way through the scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. He wants a fruitful people. And he promises rest from his enemies. And there's something distinctly covenantal about that. This is the kind of promises that God has been making to Abraham and to Moses And you can see that here we've got a development of those same promises made to Abraham uh, in in the book of Genesis. But God doesn't stop with the promises made to Abraham, though. But he expresses that same covenant, but now in new language, in a new way. He begins to talk about David after he is dead. And there are three elements of the promise that come after David is dead. 
One is that God will establish a house for David. Now, he's not talking about a building there. It's a play on words because in the Hebrew, a house can be your building or it can be your family. You know, a household. It's the same word. And so there's a play on words. And God is really speaking about his family, his household. And he's going to establish that house. And then there's going to be a seed from his body, verse 12. And then there's going to be a kingdom. A theocracy ruled by the Lord's anointed. Now, when you read that, you you immediately think of Solomon. And he fulfilled a promise in part. He will build a house. He builds a temple. um, And it's eventually consecrated in in two kings. Um, uh, But as you know the story... Solomon sinned. He, he actually gathered to himself lots of horses and possessions. And he ended up having 700 wives. Uh, and few of them were believers. And he himself lost his way. And he sinned. And, and that's the pattern that follows in generations to come. As kings come and go... Uh, the vast majority of the kings actually fall away from the Lord. And they go to the, 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 the idols and the gods of the surrounding nations. So, he, so there's a puzzle here. Verse 16 says that this house that God is promising will be established forever. And yet we find the dynasty of David is going to fizzle out after 400 years. Because they become corrupt. They forget God. And they get finally captured and taken into exile. So what are we to make of this? Does God's promise fail? When you see God's promises, you've always got to have two perspectives on things. One is where you see the end of the promise. And God says that is going to happen. But when it comes to individuals in God's history, there are still sinners. And there are ups and downs. And it seems when you just look at the individuals, so the promise is failing. But we must always take the bigger picture and remember that God has promised and he will fulfill all that he has promised. Did God's promise fail in establishing a throne forever? Well, of course, a thousand years later, there was a young woman visited by an angel and was told this. Luke 1, 31-33. Behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. See, there may, be, may have been many ordinary kings who failed and sinned and seemed as though the covenant promise had been lost. But in the fullness of time, God comes and says, Here's the king. Here's the king I was talking about. 
Jesus Christ. The crown has passed to Jesus. Of course, he didn't come as an earthly king like David, with an army and great might, but he came as nothing. He came as a servant. He came to die. He came to take away the punishment for sin, to die on a cross, to deal with the human problem of sin, to win a great victory over the greatest enemy, sin and death, at the cross, to destroy the works of the devil, to destroy the works that the devil brought into the Garden of Eden. And when he had done that, he rose from the dead, gloriously, in victory, ascended to the right hand of the Father. And now ever intercedes for his people. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he has you as a high priest, the great high priest, with the the stones on his breast, with all the names of his people. And on his shoulders he bears them upon himself. And he stands in the presence of his father. With your name and my name. And he represents you and me. He says I've paid for all their sins. My blood has been shed for them. Do not punish them. For you have punished me. And I gladly come into your presence to represent them, bring them home, my Father. Bring them home. He is the King. King of kings and Lord of lords. And we share in that kingdom as we trust in Jesus Christ. It's quite a lot to take in, I think. Um, For David, as he thinks about these promises, Lord, I just want to build your house and look what God promises Instead, quite an amazing thing for a humble shepherd boy. I have an idea that David learned well from this long-term plan. He certainly knew about the coming of a son, a king, a priest king. He's thinking small about a little building for God's Ark of the Covenant. But God is thinking about his great kingdom. And David is taken to the mountaintop and he sees far into the future and he sees the glorious panorama of God's saving grace through a king. How does David respond to this? How do we respond to this? Well, we can only just briefly look at the last section, 18 to 29. David sees himself as a servant No, not as a king. He looks at the marvelous works of God. He looks back to the past and is amazed. He looks forward to the promises and is amazed. You get a sense sense of the wonder as he's praying this prayer. Our God, his God, is not just a a local we God somewhere for, for a small people. This is the God of heaven and earth. And this is a God who has plans for salvation for all of, for mankind, for all human beings, if they would have it. And out of all humanity, he is gathering a people for himself. And he's given us a king whose throne shall endure forever. And he shall welcome people into his kingdom from all nations. 
This is a glorious thing that the apostles discovered. And Paul particularly, that he understood that Jews and Gentiles could become one new man in Christ. And all of this stimulates for David a a reflection on who God is. The heart of God. You get a strong sense of the how personal all of this is. It's worth worth studying that that prayer more carefully. Do you marvel at God like this? Are you amazed that the great and mighty God should have anything to do with you? Maybe even more amazed that God should have anything to do with those other Christians sometimes. We say in our pride. Are you amazed at how other he is than us? That there is no God of fashion or ideology or philosophy that can bless you like our God can. And when you've met him, you can't do anything but marvel and rejoice. If you're not yet a Christian today, you need to see just how gracious wonderfully gracious God is to see his heart for the salvation of his people that he wants to gather his people in are you one of his people he would gather you in if you would come to him how do you know that you're one of his people well it's very simple what marks you out is that you, you come when he calls and he is calling you today if you're not a Christian Come to him. Enter in. And when you're in the kingdom, you're in the kingdom. Discover how this God of ours showers his people with loving kindness. And if you're a Christian today, how you need to spend time with God through his son, Jesus Christ. If there's one thing that Christians need to develop, it's a growing sense of the wonder and amazement at the greatness of the love of God. It's no wonder that David was a songwriter and wrote the Psalms. He was so full of praise to God. May it be so with us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the wonderful picture that is painted for us of the glorious plan of salvation in Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the pinnacle of the covenant of grace and anticipated in the Old Testament. We pray that we be able to come to him and rest in him. In Jesus' name, amen.